Thank you, Matthew and worship team. Um, he didn't know when he chose that song that um, it's been one that <clears throat> God has ministered to me personally through um, just seeing his faithfulness. And faithfulness doesn't always mean he gets you out of every circumstance, but that he's in, in it with you and me. His grace is sufficient and sustaining. And um, like we say, great is your faithfulness. That comes from Lamentations where he also says, and his mercies are new every morning. So I just encourage you, allow the Lord's mercies that he's tailor fit for you today to be what you put on, what you wear. May the testimony that we've sung, um, may you know it in your soul. Um, I got two very special friends up here. This is Josie and Macy. Uh, They both serve in our student ministry as uh, girls' discipleship leaders. So some of the girls here uh, know them. Um, But they also are part of our young adults ministry, and they're going to be our scripture readers today. I think this is on. Okay. Our scripture reading for today is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teachings, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What, bas- what business do you have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they came out. And the report of him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you're not there already, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 will be in verses 31 to 44, which is what uh, Josie and Macy just read. As we are... In this section of Luke, um, I just want to kick us into it by saying, you know, we love people and companies who are authorized. Um, Whether it's buying a car from an authorized dealer um, or signing a contract and you have an authorized, you know, official to witness, notarize it, um, or maybe you're in your child's uh, pediatrician's examination room and you look up 
on the wall and you see the diploma wasn't from an online gadget doctor thing. It was an actual accredited medical school and you feel an instant sense of relief. Why? Because that authorized seal is on that diploma. It fosters trust to know that someone is authorized because it's saying that that one who stamped it or signed it or educated this person or provided the, the financial backing, the, um, hey, they passed the sniff test as an organization, all of that says that there's an authorizer who backs up this relationship that you're going to have with this company, with this doctor, with this person. It tells us that these people are competent, that they've passed sniff tests. And companies and organizations do everything they can nowadays to stand out to you and me as authorized. In fact, people have made whole businesses out of now authorizing things that nobody used to authorize because we all used to trust each other. (laughs) But now you can start a business and go, well, I'm going to make all of you dentist official or whatever. Software developer, I'm going to make you an official software developer, authorized dealer, whatever you you might want to call it. But what does being authorized say to you and me? Well, it says you can entrust to us what's most valuable to you, whether that's your finances, because I'm an authorized financial consultant or a doctor, etc. You can entrust to us or to me what's most valuable to you, no matter what fears you may have, trepidation, You can entrust your valuables, your life, to us because we are authorized. And Luke wants us to know that because Jesus is the one the Father has authorized for his kingdom work, we can entrust ourselves to follow him, fully follow him, not holding back any of ourselves to play it safe, but to fully Follow the one whom God authorized for his kingdom work. In Luke 4, 31 to 44 that Josie and Macy just read, Luke shows and tells us today, but actually in the reverse order for Jesus in the scene, who's going to tell, and then he's going to show, and then he's going to tell some more. That's what's going to happen. But Luke shows and tells us that Jesus is indeed authorized by God for kingdom work because of three evidences. Because Jesus demonstrates a backed-up authority, because he demonstrates and evidences an outward compassion or a compassion that gets outward, and because Jesus has a Godward compass. So a backed-up authority, an outward compassion, and a Godward compass. Dr. Luke is going to take us from last week, if you were here with us, where Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, where the people were so triggered by his message. At first, they were like, yes, hometown boy done good. And then he started meddling and got a little too close, touched a nerve, and they were triggered so much, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. But now Luke takes us to Capernaum. Literally, now we're below sea level. They were up in the heights a little bit. Now they're below sea level in Capernaum where the people are amazed at Jesus' authority and they beg him to stay. So from let's throw him off a cliff to please don't go. That's where, 
That's the big dramatic shift. And we are going to get to witness several scenes in one amazing day-ish in the life of the Son of Man. Or you could say it's really a typical day for one who has ultimate authority. If you're not there, uh, look with me at Luke 4, 31. First, Luke is going to show us that Jesus is an authorized for God's kingdom work because he is a backed up authority. Look at verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they, verse 32, and they were amazed at his teaching for his teaching, for his message, excuse me, was with authority. Now Mark tells us in his account in Mark 1, immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue. So Luke is going to locate that in the next verse, if you peek at verse 33, in the synagogue. So he was teaching, it's potentially that Jesus was teaching more than one occasion, but now we're on the occasion where things are really going to start popping. Where he is teaching and the people are amazed, but in that synagogue on that day, on that Sabbath day, while Jesus was teaching, there was a man there possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Now to me that's redundant. I mean, I think every demon is probably unclean. But the idea is that this man had an unclean spirit in him that had taken over control and possession of him. He is there in the synagogue in Capernaum on that day. And I just, <clears throat> I put on here the, at Capernaum, or Capernaum Synagogue where amazing happens. That was the slogan of the NBA a few years ago. The NBA where amazing happens. But as he's in the synagogue and he's teaching, you see multiple different references to they were amazed. And with amazement, they said this. They, they, he was blowing their categories. They were awestruck, astounded, dumbfounded, and questions rolling through their minds at a rapid pace. Who in the world is this? And it's his authoritative teaching, it's his authoritative teaching that amazed his fellow Jews in that Capernaum synagogue. Jesus' teaching authority, we're going to see in this short little scene, his authoritative teaching is seen in both contrast and in an exorcism. First, in contrast, they're awestruck because Jesus is teaching his ways of teaching were so pure and so powerful, it overwhelmed their senses. This is like um, I experienced a few years ago. I had a deviated septum for almost 30 years. And I didn't realize when I went to, I finally met our deductible. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm getting that thing fixed. But I went in and uh, I was like, now I don't know how bad it is, you know, but I know that I get more sinus infections than your average bear because I just, I'm not a doctor, I'm not authorized, but I feel like that's the deal, the deviated septum. And the guy looked and almost immediately he's like, oh yeah. He goes, where it should be, you know, straight up and down between the nostrils. He's like, yours is bent and it's curved in the shape of the letter C. And you have about 85% blockage on that nostril. Now I tell you all that sickening detail of my nostrils. Because <laughs> that, that severely obstructed my intake of oxygen. So I was used to breathing at 15% for about 30 years. And when I took that first breath, it was like a few other people who had had this similar surgery told me, it will feel 
so strange, it will almost hurt. Like, I, kind of like if we could leave here where our allergies never seem to go away, and you go to Colorado, and not only do you see the scenery, but you're like, you just breathe it in, right? It was amazing. Deviated septum surgery caused me to worship, but first it caused me to wince because it was so exhilarating, a full breath of air. And that's what Jesus' teaching was, not just this day, every day, but particularly on this day, Luke wants to highlight that the, his fellow Jews who were there were amazed at his teaching. Why were they so amazed? Well, first of all, it's because his teaching was with authority, and he, Luke is trying to show us this is in contrast to others that the, his fellow Jews would have heard Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. Now, Luke doesn't name the scribes or the other rabbis, but that Mark lets us know in his parallel passage that that's who Luke is contrasting Jesus with. The scribes and the rabbis who would have taught on a normal basis in the synagogue, it's their teaching because Mark says Jesus' teaching was not as the scribes. Luke doesn't bother with that because Luke's writing to a Gentile audience who really don't care about the scribes. But I'm letting you know why this is such a contrast to these Jews in that moment. Because the scribes' teaching, to say it plainly, was dull and footnote heavy. They constantly were quoting the rabbis who went before them and the rabbi who went before them. And it's just... Um, you know, rabbis from 50 years ago's opinion on something, other rabbis' interpretation, almost like you never say anything for yourself. But Jesus addressed topics directly. Jesus said, here's the scripture. Here's where this confronts us. Here's what this means. Here are the implications. Very plain, and we say this often, Often what's most plain on the page is most painful for us to receive and live out. We'd like to have to nuance it and dance around it, but Jesus is like, here it is. Example, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he says that multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account. You've heard it said this, but I say to you. That is saying, I am standing now in a place of authority to say, I have the authority to take what you've heard from tradition, and I'm going to be in bold print over that. In fact, I'm going to erase some of that or tell you where, yeah, that's, that's truthy right here, but here's the essence, and here's what God's Word really is. So Jesus' teaching hit different. It hit their ears different because He was not just a commenter. He was not just rolling out you know, 50-year-old opinions or from Rabbi so-and-so who also differed from Rabbi so-and-so. He didn't give them all that. Jesus himself was also, they may not have put their finger on it yet, but the reason why his teaching was so pure and so powerful is because he himself is the author. It always helps to have the author give the interpretation. He's the author and he's the embodier of the truth. In fact, it says they were amazed um, in verse 32. They were amazed at his teaching, and that is what we think of teaching, for his message was with authority. And it's his message 
Or we know from John 1, the Word became flesh. That's the same word used there. It's logos. His Word, His message was with authority. His Word is God's Word. Therefore, Jesus' Word matters the most. Not what some other rabbi said, not what the commentary said, but his word matters most. Now in verse 33, the amazing teaching, not only in contrast to the boring footnote guys, but also his authority will get backed up because things are going to get really amped up with an amped up interruption from this demon-possessed man. Pick up with me in verse 33. In the synagogue, while Jesus is teaching, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Okay, so imagine. Okay, you, Jesus has already got you on the edge of your seat. You know, you're used to getting your nap in while the rabbi quoted some other rabbi, just like I know some of y'all do. It's all right. Sometimes you just need rest. God understands that. Not only were they on the edge of their seat, but now they're really perked up because, oh, we got some action today. Some guys not only interrupting, but they potentially all knew this man wasn't right. They potentially all knew that he was possessed by a demon. And so he cries out, let us alone. Literally, um, that's probably in our translations, leave us alone and what business do we have? It's, it's literally something that my boys make fun of me for doing. It's like this guttural, emotional exclamation that doesn't really have a word. It's like, ah, that's exactly what I say, and I get in trouble or made fun of for. I'll go, ah. And that's what he's saying. But imagine sort of the demonic guttural, ah. What business do we have with each other? And, and literally, it's what do we have in common here? Why, why are you here interfacing? And Luke is setting up opposites. This is now the showdown between God and good and evil. Luke wants us to know this is the meeting of opponents. And what's going to happen? The demon says, Ah, what do we have in common? Jesus of Nazareth. So he specifies, that's true, he is Jesus of Nazareth. And he also says, have you come to destroy us? Why? Because the demons already knew the clock was ticking on them. Jesus had already confronted the tempter himself, we saw in Luke 4 in his temptation, showing he has the moral right to be Messiah. Because he conquered all the temptations, didn't um, turn his back on God, didn't take a shortcut, didn't sin. But the demons knew, just like Satan, that their time would come. Now they're going to try every which way to detract, to derail, to, to um, resist God's kingdom advancing as God decreed that it would. But this is a, this is a meeting of opponents, but... It's interesting that the demons, <clears throat> like in other places, we'll see, they get it right on. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Holy One of God. Jesus' authoritative teaching now will be shown as authorized by God because, verse 35, Jesus rebukes and casts out the demon. Look there. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. Literally, be muzzled and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, which was, you typically see this in the Gospels, it's violent. But not only does he muzzle the demon, saying, I don't want testimony to come from you because people, even though it's true, they'll question the source. And later that is going to be what happens more and more intensely. That it won't be, they can't deny what Jesus does with authority. So they'll just try to taint that by questioning the source. So he doesn't want any ties to the demonic, to the evil one. And so he, he shuts him up. And then he says, come out of him. And the demon obeys, trying to get violent. But Jesus, even in this, uh, is compassionate so that the man is not harmed, even as the, the demon comes out. And the demon has to obey Jesus' authority. Now Luke does this um, to show, to demonstrate that first evidence that Jesus is authorized because he has a backed up authority. He didn't just teach with authority like, wow, he's got you wrapped in attention. He says, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast out this demon to show you, to demonstrate to you that my word is backed up. This is actually the first miracle of Jesus recorded by Luke. And I believe that's intentional on his part. He does so to emphasize Jesus' authority as the Holy One of God, who's authorized to break the rule of Satan and to usher in a new era of God's kingdom. Okay, so he, Luke begins this way. Mark also in Mark 1, it's the first miracle there in Mark 1. How did the synagogue crowd respond? Verse 36. And amazement, there it is again. Amazement came upon them all. They were already amazed at his teaching, but now amazement comes upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, notice this, what is this message? They don't say, man, how did he cast out this demon? They don't say, I wonder if he'll do more of these. They say, what is this message? This is actually the second time that the word logos is used. Up earlier, he's just teaching. And they're amazed at his teaching, the way he does it, and that logos, that concept. Everything seems to fit together and resonates as this is God's word. And now they're saying, what does this miraculous casting out of a demon tell us about his message? Tell us about him as the messenger and the message. Because we, don't have, we won't go into this too much today. We'll do this other weeks. But we need to know this, that there are about six words in the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, used for miracles, signs, wondrous things. Okay, They're never the point. The crowd actually expresses that maybe without knowing it. Because they're going to love some signs. They're going to want some signs, but they know that the sign is demonstrating an authority and an authority. What Luke wants us to see is the point is Jesus's power and authority and particularly his authority to teach the way he does, meaning he is God's authorized messenger. So listen to God's authorized message. And any veering away from that is rejecting his authority. And power. 
They're amazed. Again, it's less about, their amazement is less about the exorcism and more about what the miraculous act points to. What is this message? The point, Jesus teaches with authority and power. And they're just wondering, who is this one who teaches with such authority? Who is this one that has power over demonic, the demonic realm? And the readers, us, and the original readers already know that he is Jesus, the Christ, whom heaven in Luke 3.22 at his baptism has already said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So we already know as Luke's readers, Jesus has already gotten a heavenly confirmation, an authorization as the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And now the demons even here confess He's the Holy One of God, and God backs that up by enabling Jesus in that moment to exercise the demon. Verse 37, what's the ripple effect? And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. So we're in Capernaum, which is right there on the Sea of Galilee, and now through all that Galilean region, all those other little towns, The word is spreading, particularly the word and the word backed up by, man, not only did he teach this, he cast the demon out of this guy and we were just blown away. That is rippling out through the whole region. And with a question for each new person who heard it is, what in the world is this new authoritative teaching? Which is really, who is this? authoritative teacher named Jesus. And so the point of Luke recording this miracle for his readers, including us, was to raise those questions in your mind, to raise those questions in my mind, to show ultimately we can entrust ourselves to Jesus as God's authorized man whose teaching is backed up with authority. Well, as we leave the synagogue, as we move to the next Section verse 38 and following, we'll see not only did Jesus display that he had a backed up authority, but also he had a remarkable, remarkable outward compassion to the sick and the outcast. We're going to see this as we travel from the synagogue to Simon Peter's house, that Jesus has an outward compassion. First, we're going to see him heal Simon's mother-in-law before sundown. Okay, they're not out and about. They're not in the synagogue. This isn't a a public healing, but he's going to go into Simon's house where his mother-in-law has a high, high fever, Dr. Luke wants us to know, and it was debilitating. Verse 38, then he got up and he left the synagogue. He entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, Jesus rebuked the fever. There's the word rebuked again. He rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. Now, you only, re- you only rebuke, and it sticks, if you have the authority to rebuke. If you have the authority to say, here's why I'm pointing this out where you're off. Or, in this case, the fever is causing her to be off in a real bad way. It's debilitating. And he has the authority not only on, over demons, like in the synagogue, but over disease. 
over everything that ails us as frail and fragile human beings. And in her suffering, Jesus, uh, in being told of her suffering, Jesus is moved with compassion to go with them into the house. Notice Jesus one-on-one with a person. He's not doing this for show out in the public, and yet he is doing it for Simon, Peter, and a few others who are there. Again, God is authenticating Jesus in this moment as one of outward compassion, and yet he can rebuke the fever. He can heal her. Notice that she was not only healed entirely and immediately, but she was also instantaneously infused with strength. Evidence that she could immediately rise with strength from this debilitating fever and serve dinner. This demonstrates Jesus' authority and power over disease. And her service, her service also shows her gratitude to Jesus for healing her. That was before sundown. Now, after sundown, verse 40, while the sun was setting, all those who had, had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. Okay, so now we're, I'm going to say we're on the front porch. I don't know if Simon had a front porch, but I like front porches. They're inviting. Let's just go there imaginatively, at least outside the home, it seems. People from all over, anybody who had someone who was sick, had an affliction, they're bringing them to Jesus. And notice this, his compassion is not just, aw, his compassion is with eyes of empathy and gentleness, and he puts his hands on them. He's one who has the authority over the disease. Also, he doesn't have to fear contracting it. But what, what a compassion that reverberates to each person when you're willing to come close, when you're willing to touch, when you're willing to listen. And I just imagine they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And why not? This might be my one shot. This, this miracle worker Named Jesus, he's here, and I've heard other people are healed. And, and so he not only heals from those from diseases, but more. Verse 41, demons were also coming out of many shouting, uh, you are the son of God, but rebuking them, third time, Jesus is rebuking, rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak. Why? Because they knew him to be the Christ. And again, he's not wanting to be tied to them as the source of his authority. And so it's while the sun was setting, this is all happening. The whole town is coming. This is a long day and into the night of ministry. Uh, Just again, think about Luke wants us to know that Matthew wants us to know Jesus is king of kings. Luke wants us to know, yeah, he's king, he's God, but he's also the person of persons. He is fully man. And so he feels everything we feel. So I imagine at the end of this day that led into a long night of healing, he's exhausted. And so Jesus, after being, you know, healing many diseased and demonized people, including Simon's mother-in-law, these miracles showing again his backed-up authority and his outward compassion, he's going to go get some rest. I don't think from the text that he got much rest because he's going to rise very early the next morning. In fact, Mark is going to go to a secluded place to be with his heavenly father. 
Why? Because of the third evidence, because he has a Godward compass. He goes to a secluded place. Let's read again how Jesus emerges from that time in the secluded place and how he responds to a crowd who find him and plead with him to stay. They want him to continue to minister there. Verse 42, read there with me. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Now, this secluded place, Mark tells us that he went there so early it was still dark. So he didn't get much rest. But, but he also tells us, and, 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 and Luke lets us know lots that Jesus did this, he goes there to pray. He goes there to commune with his heavenly Father, to enjoy that rejuvenating fellowship of the perfect love that the Father and the Son and the Spirit enjoy and cultivate eternally. But in this moment, as a man, he also goes to enjoy that and to, to, to be rejuvenated in his own spirit and, and to uh, continue to be oriented for what God has for him. So he emerges from this time alone with the Father in prayer, resolved to fulfill God's purpose and God's expectations for him because Jesus is now found by these crowds. They're wanting him to stay. It says the crowds were searching for him uh, and they came to him and tried to keep him from going away. Among the crowds were also Simon Peter and a few other disciples who, were, who probably, as, the, as part of that crowd, they probably pulled Jesus aside and they said, man, Jesus, where did you go? Like, man, last night's healing ministry was unbelievable. Let's just, let's just ride this train. I mean, this is the best ministry start we could ever imagine. What are you doing? You know, going off here by yourself. The word's spreading. More folks are sitting on the front porch right now. They're hoping to be healed. Now that, Jesus doesn't fault them. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 43. That's the crowd's expectation. That's even his disciples. Man, let's, let's ride this train, Jesus. He says, verse 43. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. Sorry, I didn't start the verse. But in contrast to what they were wanting. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Despite the popularity swell, despite the hype, the buzz, the clamoring for Jesus to stick around, despite the pressure of others' expectations of what Jesus should do, what his ministry should look like, Jesus refuses He refuses to remain in Capernaum to continue healing. Now, I want to talk about the very obvious thing. So evidently, not everyone in Capernaum had yet been healed. So Jesus, in making this decision to go elsewhere, leaves people unhealed. That is a reality for for some who didn't get there that night. That's a reality. That's a painful reality. That's probably a just pierce you to the heart if you hear of all your friends who got healed and you didn't go. I want you to just hear that and feel that. And I would say this. It's not in the text, but I would, I would say based on elsewhere and his character, 
it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't feel compassion for those who didn't be, they weren't healed. But it does let us know that he emerged from this time with his father, again, rehearsing with the father, what's his, Jesus' purpose, what's his mission. He is a Godward compass. The time with the father allowed him to be rejuvenated and to look again at the compass and say, for what purpose did you send me? Mark would tell us his purpose is the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Luke will tell us the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he didn't come. Yes, he is a miracle worker. We sang it. Okay, but he's also to be a way maker for those who are lost. And he's to be a redeemer. He's to be a rescuer from the penalty of sin. And he, He needs to get the message out because people need to understand who he is and believe and trust in him, that he's God's authorized way, truth, and life, that no one can come to the Father except through him. And I say this because all of us, how many of us, I would say, how many of us have that much clarity, that much conviction to have the courage to walk away despite others' expectations or even excitement over you? It's very tempting if things are going well to say, you know what, yeah, let's just, let's just ride this train. But his purposeful refusal to remain, despite others' expectations, demonstrate Jesus oriented his priorities and he navigated his life decisions with a Godward compass. Luke is careful to let us know how vital these times of solitude and prayer, we're going to see it again and again, these times of solitude and prayer in a secluded place, they were vital for Jesus to commune with the Father and remain resolute to pursue God's purposes as the one God authorized for kingdom work. So God's purpose for Jesus in Luke to seek and to save that which was lost, it's not to pursue insiders, but even more to pursue outsiders. What he ordained for Jesus was not crowds, but the cross. And I think in our Bible Beltian world of North Dallas, we also need to think about that in terms of what is ministry really supposed to look like? And what is ministry that, that God's in the midst of? What, what does it look like? Because we can easily say, well, it should be all about crowds. It should be all about the wow. And Jesus says, no, I was sent. I need to go to other cities also, so that they might get the good news, so that they might hear of God's love and God's plan and God's person who is himself, who has come as God's promised one. Well, Jesus' Godward's compass enabled him to stay at resolutely three things. Number one, to announce and embody the kingdom's arrival. Message more than miracles. That's what we see in this passage. Second, to call out followers. We'll see that next week in Luke 5, 1 to 11. Third, to stir up conflict. We'll see that in two weeks because he's going to do more healings. And we'll see this Godward compass as he keeps moving out and his outward compassion collide in two significant meetings on the road when he heals a leper and one that comes through the roof with the paralytic. And with them, he's going to actually be the initiator of stirring up conflict with those who are like, we can't deny what you are and what you're doing, 
but we sure are going to resist you and will ultimately reject you. Jesus is actually the instigator and initiator of that. At the end of the day, and this is where we end, at the end of the day, who is this Jesus? If you and I really understand who Jesus is, he's either a threat or a thrill. I don't, you know, and the question is, who is Jesus to you? By thrill, I don't mean entertaining. I do mean that he has your awe, that he has your attention. He has you leaning in. Or he's a threat. He's a threat to them. Notice he's a threat in in this passage, particularly to the demon. So the demons and later the religious leaders, they're the ones who actually possibly got it more right, if you will, of who he is or at least who he claims to be. And yet they find him more of a threat. Because they're threatened by Jesus' authority because that'll mean they have to then answer to who they believe he is and have to answer to his authority. But who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to Luke here? He's the one authorized to announce and embody God's kingdom authority, mercy, and mission because he demonstrates this backed-up authority, this outward compassion, and a Godward compass. These three things, these three evidences, they also raise that question. Who then is this Jesus? But they also answer it. Jesus is the one who's authorized, not to the crowds, but to the cross. Not to gain popularity, but to give his life as our place taker on the cross. Enduring God's wrath for your sin and for mine. And since Jesus is authorized for God's kingdom work, I just want to give us a couple of check engine light warnings for you and for me. Because we can read this and go, yeah, man, I know Jesus exercised the demon I know he healed Simon's mother-in-law, and we got a history lesson, and we just move on. No, these are telling us, they're confronting us, this is who Jesus is. Who do you say that he is? And even as believers, who are we seeing him as, and how are we responding to the one who is authorized by God, and he has the ultimate authority? So three warning lights. First of all, beware. So the lights are flashing. Beware, living without reference to Jesus. And by that I mean, beware of living not under his authority. As if he does not have ultimate authority, because he does. And since he has that, his backed up authority means that his word matters most. But the question is, but does it to you? Do you trust his power to deliver you or to sustain you in what troubles you? Does his word trump all other opinions that you seek when you're facing a decision or a trial? Or does someone else's opinion matter more to you? How would you know that, by the way? How would you know if someone else's opinion matters more to you on a subject, how you do a decision, how you go through this trial, how you handle your money, whatever? How do you know someone else's opinion matters more to you than his? Well, are you a worrier? 
Because worry is a decisive action, and yet it's an illusion. He tells, he speaks of that in the Sermon on the Mount. How many of us could add a single cubit to our lifespan? I don't know what a cubit is either. How can you add to your life, right, by worrying? It's impotent. It's an illusion that I will somehow control the situation that I fear. When I worry, I'm choosing to live that moment without reference to Jesus as if he has no authority. As if his word doesn't really, it's not really relevant or fitting my situation. And so worry seems so worshipful in the moment. Ultimate authority demands a submitted response. This is not a Sunday school history lesson. He has ultimate authority, period. It demands a submitted, me submitted to him. Secondly, beware presuming Jesus must heal you. I want you to be encouraged that Jesus, his power means that he can heal you. I want you to be encouraged that he's moved with compassion often and is willing to heal. I want you to know if you're in a place of battling addiction, he aches and hurts and it doesn't ignite him rolling his eyes or doing this at you. It ignites his compassion to move toward you. If you're struggling with addiction, with depression, with an, Ill, an illness, he is moved in his guts. So it, his power means he can. It doesn't guarantee he will. But his compassion makes him approachable. Approach him. It makes him approachable, but it doesn't make him obligated. Third, Beware of having your box that Jesus must fit into. The crowds came and they're like, and his disciples, hey, we'll set up camp. I've already got a website set up for us. We've got an app so people can sign up to get healed. Like they're ready to roll it forward. That's the box that they now wanted him to fit into. He will not be coerced by crowds or reduced by you and me because it is the Father who has sent him and authorized him for kingdom work. If I knew him as redeemer, healer, shepherd, and Lord, like Simon's mother-in-law, I would rise in strength to serve him out of gratitude rather than demand that if you don't behave, Jesus, and you don't get into this box, then I'm not submitted to you. Again, ultimate authority deserves a submitted response. Beware that if we try to have a box that he's got to fit into or else, We've already, we're already trying to ultimatum the ultimate authority. And no one ever wins in that. But he's saying, I want you to find rest in that. I want you to find my strength and sustenance and grace, just like Simon, Simon's mother-in-law, so that you rise in strength I give with gratitude. You and I can entrust ourselves to follow Jesus fully because he's the one authorized for kingdom work. He has a backed up authority. He has an outward compassion. He feels in his guts for you and for me. And he has a Godward compass that ultimately led him, not just to other cities, but ultimately led him. Luke 9.51 will tell us, he resolutely set his face for Jerusalem. What awaited him in Jerusalem? A God-appointed death on a cross. Crowds, yes, but crowds who turned on him and rejected him and mocked him 
and spit on him. But he, for the joy set before him, endured that cross, despising the shame. And because he did that, he could sit down at the right hand, which is a place of authority, but it's also a place of God saying, well done. You have finished the payment for sinners, and that's why I've sent you. And as we're saying that the worship team would come up, we're going to sing a song that really actually then translates. If you and I know him, no matter where you are, if you've been resistant, if you've been kind of checked out on him, he's not just ultimate authority. Um, he's, he's not just Lord, so get in line. It's, he is. But he's also compassionate. He's a shepherd. And if you are his, he says, there's nothing that can snatch you out of my hand. If his word is authoritative, there's nothing that can snatch you out of his hand if you belong to him. And as he says through Paul, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or as John says, for as many as believed him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. That is what we are. We're going to actually proclaim that. We've been looking at who Jesus is, but now because if you are in Christ, then who you are in him, you can't be touched, if you will. You can't be snatched. You will not face condemnation because you are his. And I just want us to sing out of praise. And yet let's rise to serve him with song right now in gratitude for what he's done for us.